Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. At the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in the name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one wandering off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything that they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there, are, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison under, until he can pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went to tell the, and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I, ca- I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just, I, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Well, today is the last week of this series that we have been in, making our way through Matthew chapter 18, uh, this section of teaching from Jesus where he is working through what it means for us to live as his people. And we saw in the first week of this series, you heard it just now when Isaac and Joey were reading the chapter for us, that this, this section of teaching begins with a question from the disciples to Jesus about which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus goes in all sorts of directions as he answers that question, but through it all, he's showing his disciples, and by extension, he's showing us what it looks like to live within his kingdom as his people. Jesus has been speaking without being interrupted from from verse 3 all the way down to verse 20, where we left left off last week. Uh, He's been speaking about uh, being little children within his kingdom, about protecting those little children, protecting one another from stumbling, and what, what to do in the event that one of those little ones does stumble, how the love of God pursues a little child who wanders away, who stumbles, how, how his people are to be reconciled to one another when that stumbling occurs. And, and if you can, imagine for a moment that, that you're one of the 12 disciples listening to what Jesus has been saying. You know, we can assume that, that you're tracking along with everything he's been saying, but, but really, for, as a whole, there, there hasn't been a whole lot of specifics. Maybe you've felt that while we've made our way through this series. I mean, sure, there's a lot of good things in here, a lot for us to, to chew on, to take away, but, but there's not really a whole lot of a, a blueprint as far as how to carry out this teaching from Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't give an instruction manual on how to identify when someone is in danger of stumbling. He, he doesn't give the exact scenario that then requires you to go to your brother or sister and address sin. There's good content in here, but you can imagine that the disciples, as they're listening to Jesus, thinking that maybe there just needs to be a little more clarification. So to try to get to some more of those specifics, Peter uh, puts his hand up in the middle of class, if you will, and, and Matthew tells us what happens next, starting in verse It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. You know, Jesus wasn't 
the first person to talk about forgiveness. Plenty of, of other Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day uh, had wrestled with this question, and overall, the, the consensus appears to have been that, that you should forgive someone three times. Now, baseball wasn't around yet, at least as far as I know, but, but there was still the idea of three strikes and you're out. So, so Peter is tracking along with, with what Jesus is saying, and Jesus apparently is putting a lot of weight on forgiveness, and he wants to sort out what Jesus thinks about this question, especially how Jesus compares to, to other teachers of their day. And, and so he, he thinks Jesus must be wanting to raise the bar beyond what anyone else has ever said that I've ever heard. So, so he throws out the number seven. I mean, that's, that's more than double of the number three. That's, that's more than what he's ever heard anyone else say. Seven's the biblical number of perfection. Surely Jesus is going to be impressed with Peter. Peter thinking you need to forgive someone seven times. But Jesus says instead, we should forgive 70 times. Or, or your translation might say 70 times seven times. Both are possible ways to translate what Jesus is saying there. And the fact that Jesus uses language that can be a little flexible in how we translate it clues us into the fact that Jesus is not giving us a literal guideline. He isn't saying that instead of forgiving three times, you have to, or seven times, you have to forgive 70 times, or maybe even as much as 490 times, but once, time, once 491 rolls around, you've got to keep track, and then you're off the hook. Jesus is driving the point home that his people should never stop forgiving. Peter thought he had raised the bar. Peter had thought he was going to get some brownie points, and Jesus was going to be impressed with how generous he was being. And Jesus takes the bar exponentially higher than anyone ever could have imagined. Which, in case you, you didn't know yet, uh, that can be difficult. Because forgiveness is often difficult. When we're wronged, it's human nature to want to stand up for ourselves. When someone does wrong to us, we don't just go about our business as if nothing has happened. If someone stole your car... And the response you got from the police and your insurance was that you should just get over it. That actually this is a good thing because now you're going to get to walk everywhere and that's going to be great exercise for you and you're going to be in so much better shape at the end of it. My guess is you're not thrilled with getting that news. So when Jesus says here we should never stop forgiving, it can almost sound like he's saying that anyone who follows him just needs to be a pushover and anyone can do to you whatever they want because you're required to forgive them always. The process of forgiveness, as Matthew 18 describes it, is, is difficult because, uh, like we looked at last week, it involves true forgiveness and reconciliation. N- not forgiveness that brushes issues under the rug, but, but bringing out deep wounds of life to light so that they can be dealt with, so that they can heal, so that reconciliation can happen. Jesus doesn't seem interested in the kind of forgiveness that happened in the French household when I was a kid, when I did something to my sister and I had to say I'm sorry even though I wasn't, and my sister had to say it's okay even though it wasn't before life could get back to normal. He's interested in forgiveness that brings true reconciliation, true healing for everyone involved because when that happens and relationships are fully restored, that means his people are living as he has called us to live. As a, as a Jesus people. 
an outpost in the present of what life will look like in the future when Jesus returns and restores all things to what they were created to be. So to give us a glimpse of what that sort of life in his kingdom might look like, Jesus launches into this parable. And really, as far as the parables of Jesus go, this one is, is pretty straightforward. But it can be difficult to try to put into practice. You know, forgiveness and reconciliation, all these terms, they're always a lot easier in theory than they are in practice. And because it's so simple, there's not really a, a point in me beating around the bush or or anything before we get into this text this morning, Jesus wants us to see that a Jesus people forgives. So let's look at this parable and see what that forgiveness looks like. Picking up in verse 23, Jesus is speaking. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be, be patient with me, he begged, and, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So we have this king. This king decides that he needs to settle his accounts with those who owe him money, and he starts with a servant that owes him 10,000 bags of gold. At least that's how the NIV that we've been reading from this morning puts it. If you have a different translation, it might say that, it might say that this man owed 10,000 talents, a talent being roughly the equivalent of about 20 years' worth of wages. The New Living Translation says the servant owed him millions of dollars, which isn't a bad way of putting it in our language today, although it probably undersells the amount a little bit. The actual specific amount isn't as important as the takeaway that this is an astronomical debt. In the original Greek that Matthew is writing this in for us, 10,000 was the biggest number he had available to him, and, and a talent was the biggest measurement, the biggest unit of money that was available. So Jesus might as well have said here that this servant owed the king a zillion, jillion dollars. The servant has racked up an incredible debt that he's never going to be able to pay back, no matter how hard he works, no matter how long he lives, no matter how great of a promise he can make, no matter how smooth of a talker he is, this debt is not getting paid back. And so because the king knows he's not seeing a return on this investment, he gives the order that this man and his entire family be sold into slavery to try to pay off at least a little bit of the debt. It's not going to come anywhere close to actually paying for this debt, but it will at least give him a little bit of return. And, and, as, a, and a bit of a, as a bit of an aside, I should say, just Jesus mentions slavery here, but he, I don't think he's endorsing it. This would have been a common practice in his day for someone in, in debt, and he uses that example within this parable that his audience would have understood to, to try to get at the ramifications of sin, which we'll talk through a little more here as we go along. There's no way this servant is ever going to be able to pay off this debt, but that doesn't keep him from trying. He begs, he pleads with the king. He says that if he would just be patient, he'll pay it all back. A bold-faced lie if there ever was one. There's no way this debt is ever getting paid off, but for whatever reason, maybe the king's in a good mood. Maybe the king is a lot more naive than I thought. Maybe this was just a really persuasive speech, the king decides to have pity. 
Your translation might say the king felt compassion for this servant. And he cancels the debt. He doesn't reduce the debt. He doesn't set up a repayment plan. He doesn't order the servant to go and take some classes with Dave Ramsey. He just cancels the debt and lets him go. And imagine the relief and the freedom that comes with that. If a huge financial burden, even one not remotely close to this size, if that is gone in an instant, it has got to at least brighten your day, if not give you a totally new outlook on life in general. You would expect the cancellation of this size of a debt to naturally lead to transformation to the rest of the uh, transformation of the rest of this servant's life. But we see right away uh, the impact that this sort of uh, cancellation of debt has or doesn't have on the servant as he goes out of the king's presence, picking up with Jesus' words in verse 28. Jesus says, "But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins." He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and and pegged him, be be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You Wicked servant, he said. I I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. The first servant walks out of what was truly a life altering meeting with this king having all of his debts that he could never pay back canceled and he encounters another servant and this servant basically owes him the equivalent of four months of wages if you want to try to use that as a frame of reference for yourself to put it in perspective so this isn't an insignificant amount of money it's not like this debt is going to get paid off by digging through the couch but at the same time it's pretty feasible to think that this debt is going to get paid back eventually especially compared to the amount of money that the first servant owed to the king the debt of the first servant to the king was roughly 600,000 times greater than the debt that the second servant owed to him though when the first servant sees the second servant apparently he forgets everything he had just experienced in his meeting with the king because he grabs the servant he begins to choke him he demands that he be paid back on the spot and the, the second servant he might maybe even still have hands around his throat he's able to get out the sentence be patient with me and i will i'll pay it back if that statement sounds familiar it, it might be because we heard essentially the exact same sentence just a few verses before out of the mouth of the first servant when he was before the king dealing with his own debt the first servant had promised that if the king would would just be patient he would pay back everything and now the second servant is making the exact same promise to him the only difference is that this time it's for an amount that is six hundred thousand times smaller so what does the first servant do well, if, if what the second servant said to him sounds familiar to us, you would surely think it would have sounded familiar to him. But instead of listening to the request of his fellow 
servant, the first servant takes him, he throws him into prison with the sentence that he has to stay there until he can pay off the debt, which means the servant is going to be stuck in prison until someone else pays off the debt for him because there's no way for him to make money to pay off this debt while he is in prison. It is an intense punishment, especially for a debt of this size. But apparently, we, we find as we read that this interaction between the two servants does not happen behind closed doors because word gets back to the king about what's happened. When the king finds out about this situation, he, has, he is not happy. The, the first servant had received mercy, far more mercy than he deserved, and yet that mercy did not transform him. Instead of allowing that abundant mercy to change how he viewed the rest of the world and every other relationship he had, this first servant went out of the presence of the king, still holding a list of grievances, still looking for chances to receive back what he felt was rightfully his. The mercy he's received might have changed his financial situation, but it has not changed his heart. And for that reason, the king hands him over to the jailers until he is able to pay back every penny he owes which means he will be in prison for the rest of his life. And the, the, the story, the parable Jesus is telling ends there, but Jesus is not quite done teaching yet. The whole point of this parable is to give us a glimpse into how forgiveness works within the kingdom of God. So we get a sort of tagline from Jesus there in verse, 45, verse 35, excuse me, to cap off this parable and this chapter that we've been working through as a whole. Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's the lesson Jesus wants us to take away from this parable. There are some teachings of Jesus where he leaves us to ponder the point that he is making on our own, but he does not give us that luxury here. If we truly have been forgiven by God, our King, that naturally means that we should extend forgiveness to others. But just because Jesus is clear here does not mean that his words cannot be misunderstood. So I want to take just a little bit of time to be clear about what Jesus is and is not saying. First, we need to understand this isn't Jesus saying that God is just waiting for the first time you don't forgive someone so he has an excuse to send you to hell. And secondly, this is not Jesus saying that no matter what happens to you, you just need to put on the outward appearance that you've forgiven even if you haven't. Jesus calls us to forgiveness that leads to reconciliation, like we saw last week. Jesus specifically says here that he is talking about forgiveness from the heart, forgiveness in our heart. And that should call our minds back to passages like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus drives the point home time and time again. He is not concerned with outward appearances. He is concerned about what is going on inside of us. Jesus is not concerned with behavior modification. He is concerned with a transformed heart that leads to transformed behaviors. Jesus calls us to have a heart that forgives and desires reconciliation with those who have wronged us, even if that process is difficult and even if the person we are forgiving does not feel the same way. And the reason why Jesus gives this teaching is because forgiven people forgive people. If someone has a heart that holds grudges and is bitter and refuses to forgive wrongs done to them, that is a pretty good indication that they have not fully grasped the forgiveness that God has offered to them. 
Jesus is not saying that there is a threshold of forgiveness abilities you have to reach, ascend to before God lets you into his family. He's saying that if you have a heart that refuses to hand out forgiveness, it might be a pretty good indication that your heart has not been transformed by the love of God that has been offered to you. You know, it's really not that strange that I don't bear a family resemblance to anyone in this room this morning because I'm not a blood relative of anyone in this room this morning. At least I don't think I am. So if you've been holding that information from me, I would like to know it at some point. Um, But if, for whatever reason, if you could imagine with me, you traveled home with me to a family holiday or a family reunion, you would expect me to at least sort of look like and act like some of the other people in my family because of that familial connection. And Jesus is saying something similar about his own family here. A Jesus people forgives. Not because we're pushovers. Not because we're putting on a good face when we're secretly holding grudges under the surface. But because we belong to the family of God who has forgiven. The God that we belong to has forgiven us far more than we will ever have to forgive anyone else. This parable is how... Jesus concludes this teaching we've been looking at over the last few weeks. This sort of deep forgiveness is only possible within the context of a community of people all growing together to be more like Jesus. It's only possible when a group of people are caring for one another, taking care of each other to make sure they are not led astray, and making sure that when those dangers arise, those who are in trouble can be reconciled to God and to their brothers and sisters. If you notice there in verse 31, if you still have your Bibles open in front of you, Jesus says that the king finds out about the first servant not forgiving the second servant through the community. The other servants see what is happening and report it back to the king. And I don't think Jesus mentions that here because he's making a point about the value of being a tattletale or anything like that. But within this chapter we've been looking at, it makes sense that when there is injustice among God's people... It's dealt with among that community of believers. That doesn't mean we have to be constantly trying to dig up dirt on one another, but it does mean that we should be invested in one another's well-being, reminding one another of the forgiveness Jesus has offered to us and ensuring that we are offering that same forgiveness to others. The message of this parable is not do better. It's look at what God has done. The message of this parable is not, you better forgive or God won't love you. The message is, if you understand how much God loves you and has forgiven you, why wouldn't you want to forgive other people? Jesus does not give this parable because he's giving us our annual evaluation of all the areas we need to grow in. He gives this parable to help us put in perspective just how much God has done for us. We are the first servant. Every one of us have stood before our king facing a debt that was impossible for us to repay. We have all sinned before a holy God, meaning the only thing we deserved was death. And facing that reality, our options are to try to pay it back on our own, which is impossible, or to beg and plead for mercy We can offer up empty promises that we'll do better next time, but no amount of doing better will ever make us right before God. But thankfully, 
Our king, the one we owed the debt to, is a king full of compassion and pity. That word in verse 27, the the NIV translates as pity, or like I said earlier, your Bible might say compassion, is a word that most of the time is used in reference to God. But every now and then, Jesus will use it in a parable. Uh, It's the feeling that the father of the prodigal son has in Luke chapter 15, when he looks out and he sees his, his son who said, I wish you were dead and left with his inheritance coming back home. It's the feeling that the Good Samaritan has in Luke chapter 10 when he sees someone left for dead and and decides to attend to his wounds. It's how the king in this parable reacts to his servant, to us. He, He doesn't shake his head in disappointment. He doesn't give us a list of things we better do to get in line. He extends mercy we do not deserve. He cancels the debt of sin that we could never pay off on our own. But the story does not end there because that forgiveness was never meant to be something we just kept to ourselves, but something that we offer to others. A Jesus people forgives, and so that means that if we truly grasp just how deeply we have been forgiven, that should impact how we treat those who have wronged us. We shouldn't be people who desire to get even because, that, because of how God has dealt with us. We shouldn't be people holding on to bitterness, even if that is our natural tendency. Because like I said last week, if Jesus is calling us to something that goes against our natural tendencies, that must mean he is offering us something better than what we could ever find on our own. We should seek forgiveness, reconciliation. It won't always be easy, but it is the life Jesus calls us to. No one will ever do any wrong to you greater than the wrongs that you and I have done to God. And the fact that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our wrongs against God have been forgiven means that we are able to forgive others who have done wrong to us, even if in our eyes or in the eyes of those around us, they might not deserve it. As we conclude this sermon and this series of looking at how we live as a Jesus people, that we need to spend some time reflecting on what this depth of forgiveness looks like. For those of us who are a part of Jesus' people, we need to consistently remind ourselves and those around us of the forgiveness God has extended to us, and ask God to help us extend that forgiveness to others. And if you do that heart check and realize that actually you don't forgive that easily, the takeaway from this parable is not you better shape up or God won't love you. The takeaway is to consider the links God has gone to so that we might be forgiven. And as a response to that forgiveness, we can then turn around and offer that forgiveness to others. And I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and act like that's easy. It might involve swallowing pride. It might involve acknowledging deep wounds that we would rather hide. It might involve being aware of the fact that the other person that we forgive might not care at all about our forgiveness. Forgiveness is not easy, but because of what Jesus has done for us, it is possible. And it's not something we have to sort out alone. Forgiveness works within a community of people walking alongside one another, seeking reconciliation and healing because of what Jesus has done for us. 
And when we walk through that process, even when it's difficult, the promise is that we will come through to the other side more like Jesus, more like the person he has created us to be. Now, if you're not a part of Jesus' people, you might listen to all of Jesus' words in this parable, all the talk of forgiveness this morning, and think it seems a little over the top. I mean, sure, forgiving people is probably in our best interest. Holding on to bitterness isn't all that healthy. But does this really mean we have to forgive others no matter what? If you have those sorts of questions, what this parable tells us is that our situation, our situation before God is worse off than we ever could have imagined. We are far more sinful than any of us would ever dare to admit. The debt we owe to the king is an astronomical amount we will never be able to repay. The situation's worse than we thought, but the king is more merciful than we could ever imagine. Jesus' death and resurrection has forgiven our debt that we could never repay, and that fact brings transformation. Jesus brings freedom. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom from the bitterness and anger that attempts to control our lives. Freedom to live as we were created by God to live. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we can live in the freedom that forgiveness offers. We can extend that forgiveness to others so that they too might experience freedom. Someone transformed by the love of God does not have to play the games of getting even and holding grudges because Jesus has offered us something better. This passage is not Jesus saying that to follow him means you have to be a doormat to everyone around you. He's saying that if you understand the freedom available through his love and his forgiveness, you won't try to put yourself under the tyranny of anger and bitterness any longer. A Jesus people cares for one another because of the care Jesus has for us. And that's expressed in our forgiveness. Even to those who in the world's eyes might not deserve it. Because that is exactly who we were before Jesus' death for us. Let's pray. God, our Father, our King, we are grateful for your mercy. For your compassion, your pity on us when we were helpless sinners, when we had rebelled against you, when we had run away and tried to figure things out on our own, we are grateful that you are a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. You are full of grace. Grace far more abundant than we could ever imagine. Grace that pursues us, grace that is expressed in the coming of Jesus his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, so that we too might be raised to new life. So as we live as your people, as we live as those who have been raised to new life in Jesus, help us to take on the character of Jesus. Help us to be people who forgive as we have been forgiven. Help us to consistently remind ourselves of what you have done for us and as a response to that, offer that same love and forgiveness to others. May we be lights that shine the hope of forgiveness to a world that is more and more hesitant to forgive, that is more and more to extend mercy and grace and compassion. 
May we show the world around us what true life in you looks like. Life characterized by the same kind of compassion that you showed to us through the forgiveness we extend to our world. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.